Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast interview with Emily Good from the Advocates for Human Rights. Today, we will discuss the board decisions in matter of WGR and matter of MEVG and what these decisions mean for the particular social group asylum definition. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with your background, Emily, the work that you do and the work of the Advocates for Human Rights. So I'm a staff attorney here at the Advocates for Human Rights, and I've been working on asylum cases, helping pro bono attorneys navigate asylum cases and supporting and representing low-income asylum seekers for over 10 years now here in Minnesota. And that's a core part of the work that we do here at the Advocates is mentoring pro bono attorneys, supporting them as they um, help asylum seekers through the process. We also do a lot of advocacy and education around immigration issues and policy, particularly in the areas of asylum and detention issues. So that's kind of where I come into this work. And I should note that my very first case when I was a law student helping out down on the southern border involved a young man who was fleeing, who was afraid of being recruited by a gang. So this was these cases are sort of where I began my introduction to asylum law. Mm. And what about the Advocates for Human Rights? What is the range of their work? Well, we do... Um, A lot of our work is around asylum, but we also do work on domestic violence and sex trafficking and general human rights education, as well as advocacy at the United Nations using UN mechanisms to help hold U.S. and other governments accountable for their violations of human rights by submitting reports and raising those issues up to the international level to get some more visibility where maybe we aren't getting visibility in the U.S. Thank you. So let's talk about these recent Board of Immigration Appeals decisions. We can start with a matter of WGR. They came out about the same time, but that's the first of the two, at least in numerical sequence. Can you give a brief description of the case, please? Sure. Um, So this new board case sort of works to clarify the definition of particular social group in the asylum context Um, for some of our volunteers who might the newer, of course, particular social group is one of the five grounds for asylum, and it's really been the area of asylum law with the most evolution over the past few years because it has the most wiggle room, I guess. And this case, these two cases, really are represent another refinement from the BIA about how they're thinking about particular social group and how they're defining it. So that underlying facts in WGR are pretty straightforward. It was a young man who was a member of the Mara 18 gang in El Salvador. He left the gang, quit being a member, and as a result of leaving was attacked twice. In one of those attacks, um, he was shot in the leg. So when they sought asylum for him, his proposed social group was former members of the Mara 18 gang in El Salvador who have renounced their gang membership. And the board ultimately does not Um, support this social group, and we'll get into the details of kind of why and what that means. Thank you. And can we look at the 
the board's intent then beyond ruling on this one person's asylum eligibility? Yeah. One thing I think, and I sort of hinted at this in my introduction, that's worth noting is that um, these claims, these asylum claims that we've been referring to as gang cases, um, have been one of the biggest areas of growth in asylum claims in the last probably 10 to 15 years. There's been a lot of especially young people coming who are fleeing, either because they don't want to join or because they've left a gang after joining. And so in this case, in WGR, the BIA, I think, is really, they're both trying to clarify particular social group more. Um, and I think this, you have to look at this case in the context of the 2008 cases, matter of SEG and matter of EAG, which were the first board cases that really issued a particular social group, um, were particular social group rulings related to these increasing claims based on gangs. And they said, your social group has to be socially visible and particular. And that was the first time we saw those two elements explicitly articulated as requirements as part of a particular social group. And so those, that was 2008. And then we've had a number of circuit court decisions on the particular social group issue since then. And the Seventh Circuit, in particular, has been really vocal in their disagreement with the board's definition in the Third Circuit um, in a case that actually became MEBG that we'll talk about also rejected this social visibility and particularity. Most of the other circuits have accepted the social visibility um, and particularity requirements, but I think that what you're seeing with these decisions is really the board is sort of responding to some of the circuit courts who have said, you got it wrong. Hmm. And what does the board mean by particularity? So what they mean, and I did a side-by-side it, from what they said in SEG and what they say now, and it's not hugely different. So the board is also saying that there's this commonly accepted definition in society. And to me, this means that the social context in which the case arises really matters. So the society where that person is from, uh, what the norms are in that society, how people view things and interact are really important in thinking about that social group. And what does the board say about social visibility or what it now wants to call social distinction? Right. I think this is the one, if you will, maybe humorous part of the decision is that they clarify that social visibility does not mean ocular visibility. And so clearly this is one reason why they felt the need to issue a new decision is to clear up any confusion that social visibility meant actually ocularly visible. Um, they clear up now that it means perceived as a group by society. Um, to make clear that, you know, often, for instance, our political beliefs may not be actually visible to people around us, even though they are held, and people can know that we hold them, and it makes us distinct, but they may not be visible. So we now have social distinction. Um, and they also say that you need to have evidence that, quote, society in general perceives, considers, or recognizes persons sharing the particular characteristic to be a group. So the group is not defined by the perception of the persecutor. It's defined by 
how does society view this group? Does society view this as a group? Thank you. And the board also goes on to address UNHCR guidelines and how their analysis and decision fits in with those guidelines. Can you talk about that for a minute, please? Yeah, and it's so the U, UNHCR um, has been involved in basically since SCG as um, submitting amici because some of the language around social visibility came out of UNHCR guidance on refugee definition. And ultimately, here the BIA says UNHCR guidelines are useful interpretive aids that are not binding on our courts in the US. And which I think is consistent. The board has historically said that. Um, the UNHCR has said that particular um, social distinction is social visibility is one piece, but that it's not a required element. So the board has really departed from what UNHCR's definition is. And I think UNHCR guidelines in that way are designed to be kind of flexible and to evolve and to give some space for a particular social group to be an area that isn't as clearly defined as, say, religion. But I think the board is looking at this and sort of trying to narrow and keep the focus on particular social group really tight and restricted. Mm. And with this requirement that society generally perceives or recognizes people sharing this particular characteristic to be a group, is that a, a higher evidentiary bar? Can, can you talk about how we prove that society recognizes a group? I do think it is potentially a higher evidentiary bar. I think, um, you know, it's always been really important in asylum cases to provide country conditions documentation that gives the adjudicator a context in which to place the case that corroborates events and incidents and experiences of the client. And I think this decision, because it talks about how important it is for the context of that society, you know, is how does society perceive this group, that there may be cases where really it almost an expert witness becomes required because this information to contextualize how society views young men who are being recruited may not be available in documentation like human rights reports or news articles. Oftentimes, this is information that is not necessarily reported or known to people who aren't residing in or members of the society in question. So I think there almost is a raising of the evidentiary bar in cases like this. And I think that's a real concern for low-income and pro bono clients, who obviously are quite a few of the people in our asylum seeker pool um, because the statutes say you need to present all reasonably available evidence, what is reasonably available is determined by the adjudicator. And so I think adjudicators could interpret the language here um, to say, look, you need to be providing more specific evidence about the social distinction and social perception, and the only way to do that realistically is through an expert. Hmm. And do you think that 
the decision impacts strategies around particularity, around how we uh, try to cast or define a, a client's circumstances or social group membership? I do. I think it's always been a challenge in particular social group to balance the need to draw a narrow enough social group that it doesn't encompass everyone in society, while at the same time making it broad enough that it still is a group, right? We don't have a particular social individual category. And so I think, you know, there's, you don't want, I think especially here, an exceptionally narrow group because how do you show social distinction if you put in so many qualifiers that your group really only consists of your client and one or two other people. So I, I think that's a challenge. Depending on what circuit you're in, though, I think there is some decent case law for even larger groups. And I see that that may be a litigation trend, is that people may start pushing broader groups to try to work within this framework. In the Eighth Circuit, we have a case called Hassan v. Gonzalez that talks about and finds that Somali women can be a valid social group. It deals with FGM, and FGM is incredibly prevalent throughout the country, as are other forms of violence against women. And so you do have cases out there with pretty broad, where broad social groups do survive. So I think it's sort of just a continuation of the challenges that we've had in trying to, you know, walk the tightrope between overly broad and too narrow. Thank you. Can you make any sense out of the board's distinction on nexus? In this case, not finding, uh, quote, retribution by gang members motivated by a status as a former gang member rather than by the gang's desire to enforce their code of conduct. Um, does a code of conduct preclude a qualifying motive? I, I didn't understand that part. I sort of agree when you say didn't understand my my first read through I actually my notes sort of have a giant question mark next to this um, to go to the easy part of the question I don't think a code of conduct precludes a qualifying motive so there are certainly um, cases where former members have been found to be a valid social group and they've been persecuted I mean and presumably their persecution is because they weren't following whatever rules or, if you will, code of conduct was expected by the group um, to cite another Eighth Circuit case. Um, it's called Gathungu v. Holder. And in that case, they said Mungiki defectors are a specific group perceived by society who are persecuted by the Mungiki, which is basically, I mean, a Kenyan criminal gang with a lot of political power. And, you know, in talking about the persecution and inciting to the country conditions in that report, I mean, when I read it, the gentleman in that case was essentially being persecuted because he'd broken the rules or the code of conduct of the Mungiki. And so I don't, I mean, I think that this statement by the board doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think they're just sort of contorting themselves to try to really differentiate gangs somehow um, and really struggling to deal with how do you deal with gangs? Because we don't like them because they are, quote, criminal enterprises. And somehow 
I think there's a real discomfort with dealing with that in the context of asylum that is coming up in this statement. And why the two published cases? When you read them side by side, they're so similar. What do you think is the reason for publishing two cases on basically very similar legal decision? I think it's two parts. One is I think they are trying to address the two most common categories of gang cases, which are people who've refused to join and then people who were members of the gang but have since left because I think they potentially, well, they do fall into separate categories where you have an immutable characteristic if you have a shared past experience. So former members in that way are differentiated. And so I think they wanted two cases so that they could clearly say this applies to both groups. I also, in all honesty, I think the board was really directly responding to the Third Circuit on the MEVG case, which the Third Circuit had said, we don't think your analysis on particularity and social visibility really works. And I think the board wanted to very directly address the Third Circuit. Yes, I, I think so, too. It, but other than that, do you find any significant differences in the analysis? I really didn't. I mean, in reading both of the cases, they lay out um, the sort of history of social group um, law as they've stated it. They lay out the particularity and social distinction in almost exactly the same way. So I think it's basically the same decision until you get to sort of the specifics of how we're applying this to the facts in these two different cases. Right. And the board cites a, a Third Circuit complaint that there is little difference between particularity and social visibility or social distinction. The board uses a sort of a landowner example to show what is particularity versus what is social distinction. Can you talk about the board's response and whether you found that to be a valid or helpful clarification for your own practice. I will say that I did not find that example particularly helpful in my own practice. I think when you look at particularity and social distinction abstractly, as we do a lot of times when we're either reading case law or sitting down and assessing a case, I think it's easier to see a difference. I mean, when I map out how these decisions flowed, I can see a difference between particularity and social distinction. However, when you really try to construct a social group and explicitly apply facts to each of those elements, I think they collapse together a little bit more. And really, both of them are about this idea of social context. Um, what's, how does society perceive this as a group? Is it an amorphous group? Is it discrete? I think those things are really at splitting hairs to try to separate them out when you really come down to the reality of the facts of the case. Right. And do you think that the social distinction requirement is uh, raises the bar? It, do these need to be higher profile cases for society to have an awareness of a group? I don't know that it raises the bar for awareness of a group within society, but I think, as we talked about earlier, I think the evidentiary bar is certainly higher. I think you could have a small group that could easily, under this framework, be recognizable, but I think as an advocate for a client, you're going to be really challenged 
in trying to show how society recognizes that group. So maybe, yes, I don't know that you have to have a more visible group per se, but then the smaller your group, the harder it's going to be for you to meet the standard here. Thank you. And at the end of MEVG, the board lumps together kids who are targeted for recruitment with people across the society who are suffering from gang violence. And I, I didn't find that particularly convincing. And I wondered, you know, how are these cases different than, say, child soldier cases? I think it's a really tough distinction to make, first of all. I think if we are distinguishing, say, child soldiers from kids targeted for recruitment, this is where I think, again, we get into the distinction that the board seems to be making between people who've been a member of an organization and left and people who have not. So I think that's maybe where the distinction lies very simply. I think also, though, what the board is getting at and maybe what is also just evidence of a broader policy view by the immigration agencies and, you know, the U.S. to a certain extent, is a historical issue that we've had in our immigration policy with Central Americans and Mexicans versus or compared to people from farther away or people from places where we have different sympathies and political ambitions. You know, in the 1980s, we had a huge Central American refugee flow and they were, at that time, treated differently than, say, Soviet refugees. Same with Haitians, who've always been treated differently than Cubans. Um, so I think part of what's underlying this board you know, insti- instinct to lump the kids targeted in with you know, society at large is sort of this floodgates fear that seems to come up a lot of times in immigration policy, and particularly with regard to Central America and Mexico. And I think it's it isn't necessarily a different situation from kids targeted for, you know, or kids who've been child soldiers, but we've, we're viewing it differently. So is this the nail in the coffin on gang cases? I mean, what are the remaining strategies? Well, I don't know that it's totally the nail in the coffin, but I do think that um, you need potentially to have another ground, another one of the five grounds, to hang your case on to be really successful. So if you have a kid who is resisting recruitment who also happens to be a member of the Latter-day Saints and, or who's also been a political activist, I think it's going to be really critical for people to distinguish their, the facts of their case from the facts of you know, MEVG and WGR and SEG and EAG. And I think that is a real challenge because, as we were just saying, you know, the situation is such that the facts for a lot of people are really similar. And so I think it's, I think it's hard. I don't know that it, I don't think it's dead, but I think it's hard. Are there circuits where gang arguments remain viable? I think the Seventh Circuit, um, they have so far been the most open to these claims and the most ambitious in terms of challenging and really pushing the board's definitions and um, being creative, I guess creative is the wrong word, but being um, really open to thinking about these in a different way than I think most of the other circuits have been. I think in other circuits, um, 
I don't know. I mean, the Third Circuit, I could see potentially because when you read MEVG, which is clearly a response to the Third Circuit, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Third Circuit sort of feel frustrated by that and to come back to the board. So I think those are your two best bets. Overall, I think it's continuing to be really important for um, people to make good arguments down below at the immigration court level, make the argument that you have, and make sure you're preserving all potential social groups for appeal. And it may mean articulating more than one social group to give their room for something to come up. Thank you. And I have one more sort of theoretical question before we look at takeaways. Is there another legal protection that we should be considering or creating for young people who are targeted by gang violence? I think one way to look at this is that it looks similar to some of the situations that have resulted in granting temporary protected status or TPS to countries, you know, where there's widespread violence affecting big parts of society. Um, maybe a TPS designation is what we need because also, even though young people are the ones who are coming in the largest numbers, they certainly aren't the only people being affected by the issues with gangs. Um, in Central America. And so that could be an option. I think another possibility that exists right now is special immigrant juvenile status, which doesn't apply to everyone. It isn't always the best solution because obviously there's an age limit and it oftentimes requires, you know, giving up connections to parents who may still be living in the home country. You need a lot of other things, but SIJS may be an option for some kids who really just can't qualify for asylum because of these decisions. Right. And so how would you, what's your takeaway on this? How or whether would you tweak your presentation of any social group case, maybe not just gangs, based on these decisions? I think for long established and what we would consider more accepted social groups, such as opposition to FGM, if you look back at the Kasinga case, which is also referenced, in um, these decisions, or um, LGBT cases like Tobaso Alfonso, which I think is also referenced in here, I think I would only address it briefly. Don't make these the centerpiece of your social group analysis. Those are groups that have been established by the BIA. The BIA has recognized their validity. In writing MEVG and WGR, they kind of go to great contortions to say, look, this doesn't harm our previously established social groups. So I think, you know, don't, don't overthink it on some of those more established groups. I think if you're creating sort of a newer, more unique particular social group claim. For example, in our office, we had a gentleman from a country in West Africa who was chosen through a process to become the tribal king. And he did not want to become the tribal king for a variety of reasons, including that it conflicted with his religion. And he was being persecuted by the elders. It was a it's a really complicated social group. And I think for something like that, you need to walk through social distinction and particularity and really think about how you can make that, how you can raise those within your case to make it fit. Um, that being said, I think you don't want to craft a social group that's so contorted just to meet what the BIA has set out in these two cases. I think you still, the bottom line is create a social group that makes sense. The 
as with so many things in life, if you can keep it simple and clear, that's probably going to be a better solution. And frankly, that probably gets you somewhere on social um, in terms of whether society would actually view it as a group. So maybe thinking of simpler, think like the society that the person is coming from and what would they view this person as. Well, thank you. This has been a conversation with Emily Good from the Advocates for Human Rights. Thank you for your time and your expertise. You're very welcome.